Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the Internet's finest podcast for music that makes the Astrodome levitate. We are going to start off, per usual, with a little bit of trivia. I'm going to go first tonight, and we are going to start with an audio round. And what I am going to be playing will be five tracks of music. I would like for you to name the artist, the song title, and the theme. Okay, that's pretty simple. Shouldn't be too bad. Let's do it. All right, here we go. Track one. Track two. Track three. Track four. Never been to London, never been to France. Never wore a sorry, never learned to dance. Never Track five. How do you think you did so far? I've got two or three of them, pretty sure, 100%. And then I got guesses, I think, for the other ones. So I'm feeling pretty confident, feeling pretty good for this one. Great. And we will be playing those again at the end of the show. So you'll have time to hear them one more time. And again, I'm looking for the artist, song title, and theme. Perfect. All right. I'll go ahead and jump in with my trivia. This episode is our second part on uh, music from cults, and one thing I've noticed, I bet you've noticed too, Joe, is that these cult bands tend to have a lot of members in them. Yeah, I think we mentioned members on the first episode, something about members. Yeah, <laughs> and the, how much trouble they had getting in and out. <laughs> yeah, Father Yod, if I remember right, <laughs> had a member that planned some escapes. <laughs> <laughs> we had several discussions of um, Father Yod's member. All right, so here is uh, today's trivia called Strength in Numbers. So I'm going to tell you the name of a band, and all you have to do is tell me how many members were in that band at one time. So how many members they may have on stage at one time. And you can be within one either way. 
Within one? Within one. Okay. You got it. All right. First one is the Sun Ra Orchestra. Twelve. Fifteen. Fifteen. Okay. All right. Next one is Godspeed, you Black Emperor. Twelve. You got it. Yes, it is eleven. So you get the point for that one. Okay. Next one is I'm from Barcelona. Twelve. Twenty-eight. I know the name. I can't think of why I know the name. I think they're pretty much famous for having 28 members. So, Poly- Polyphonic Spree kind of yep. thing? Yep, you can go ahead and guess Polyphonic Spree because it's coming up. What do you think? 36. Oh, close. 32. 32. Okay. All right, the Parliament Funkadelic. Nine. 16. Okay. 16. Most of these bands fluctuate, because trying to get, you know, 15 people to do anything at the same time is tough, but this is what I found as far as, like, their their peak, peak numbers. Okay. All right. Fela Kuti and the Africa 70. 17. Close. 20 people. 20 people. I'm not going to... I mean, if if I get any of these, it will be luck. Yeah. It's it's more just to, just to see. All right. Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. 11? 11. Very good, very good. On the head. Did you know that, or was that a guess? Total guess. Good guess. Sigur Ross. 8. 12. Okay. should just guess 11. You probably would have got most of them. I was going to guess 12 the whole <laughs> way through. That's why I started my first three, and it... You would have got more than you are going to get if you would have done that. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, it sounds like there'd only be three, but I think that are all of these at least double digits? Yes, they're all double digits. Okay, thank you. I will go with 13. 11. 11. Okay. And the last one, Trans-Siberian Orchestra. 60. (laughs) Pretty close. 31. Okay. 31. That's why they're wow. so good. Doesn't sound like much of an orchestra, though. They're ten times better than Nirvana. They're five times better than Nirvana and the police if they got together. So, I mean, that's pretty good. All right, well, I can't say you did good on that quiz, but I don't know how you would. I bombed it. All right. You ready for some turntable talk? I believe I am. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind Most people who know about the 1965 Newport Folk Festival know it for a single event, Bob Dylan going electric. Dylan and his band played three songs plugged in followed by two acoustic songs to mollify the folkies. But those two weren't enough to calm the crowd, and he was asked to leave the stage by Peter or Paul or maybe Mary. The myths and legends about this day are well known, with the most famous being a rabid Pete Seeger running around with an axe, a la Lizzie Borden, trying to decapitate a cable. He probably could have just unplugged something, I think. And though that performance was one of the most iconic in all rock history, 
What happened next may have been the start of one of the most nefarious cults in America. As Dylan left the stage, a scrawny but brilliant young harmonica player fumed over the voice of a generation, turning his back on the people. Bob Dylan's refusal to take residence upon a pedestal he had no interest in being atop in the first place incensed this sickly-looking musician named Mel Lyman. Lyman, with his harmonica in hand, or possibly in his neck holster, stormed the stage without permission and began playing a solo that some say lasted ten minutes, some twenty, and others thirty. The song he played was Rock of Ages, and it was Lyman's sincere attempt to exercise what had just happened from the consciousness of those most shocked by electricity. When asked about this experience, Lyman said that what he did was like what Christ had to do before mounting the cross. He said, Not my will, but thine be done, and then there was no cross, no death. Today's episode is a continuing examination of the strange bedfellows of cults and music. Last time we discussed some of the more academic reasons why leaders and their minions utilize music to recruit, indoctrinate, isolate, and elevate their groups. So today we are going to dive right in to the fringiest of the fringe, the absurd ashrams, the kookiest communes, the flakiest faiths, the goofiest gurus, the screwiest sects and the zaniest zealots. So go ahead and plaster your best up-with-people smile on that face, schedule tomorrow's deprogramming session, and hunker in your bunker as we prepare to astrally project the second installment of the fascinating world of cult music. If you listen to part one of this two-part episode, you've heard us qualify the discussion by telling you that we fully comprehend the damage and despair that many of these cults created. We're attempting to both describe how these cults use music as part of their indoctrination processes, as well as shedding some light on the actual sounds of the bands and artists. When we joke during this episode, it isn't done to make light of anyone's tragedies. It's done so that we can present what we think is an interesting topic in a way that won't leave us morbidly depressed for the next month. So with that said, let's look into the rest of the Lyman family story. Mel Lyman once spoke the words... I tell you I am the greatest man in the world, and it doesn't trouble me in the least. This destructive hubris was not an act. After roaming the country in his early 20s, the Woody Guthrie-obsessed Mel Lyman found himself in North Carolina, where he dove headfirst into old-time Smithsonian folkways music. By that point, he'd become a decent banjo player and an outstanding harmonicist. 
After soaking in the local music, Lyman made his way to Boston, where he became a regular in the coffeehouse scene. One of the most well-known entertainers in that folk scene was Jim Queskin, who played fun jug band music and was one of the two best washboard players in the city. The washboard legend, Fritz Richmond, was also there and ended up playing in Queskin's band. Fritz Richmond is allegedly the inspiration for people like John Lennon and Jerry Garcia wearing those stupid granny glasses. Those glasses are almost as bad as most of these cults. Jim Queskin was asked to record a studio album by the owner of Vanguard Records. Queskin had a good band, but not studio album good, so he started putting together an improved version. Wanting to upgrade his banjo player, Queskin recruited Lyman, based on reputation more than first-hand knowledge. Queskin said he was weird and into astrology and crazy diets, but he had no idea what was coming. The absolutely humorless Lyman joining an old-fashioned, good-timey folk troupe would seem to be a bad match, like the Nightmare Riverbottom Band invading Emmett Otter's Jug Band. But for a few years, it worked pretty well. It was with this band on July 25, 1965, that Lyman found himself with a front-row seat while Bob Dylan forever shattered music as he knew it. What was left of Lyman's fragmented psyche was taken over by a celestial presence, announcing itself as the essential and unavoidable new messiah. When Lyman returned to Boston, he and a small group of others took an area of the town over by use of squatter's rights. The buildings they took over were known as Fort Hill, the site of an old abandoned army fort. From here, the odd Lyman had found a way to present himself as God. Literally. Known as the Fort Hill family, this burgeoning group was different from the stereotypical communes we've been discussing. Lyman only ever acknowledged it as a community. The mindset was more conservative than the standard commune ethos. For the most part, members were monogamous, though women needed to maintain subservience and were only there to be barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. Lyman, for his part, had somehow become incredibly charismatic and had been able to find a lot of followers who were quick to refer to him as God. He began experimenting with hallucinogens on many of them without them knowing. That may have aided in his charisma. He and his other followers took control of a local paper called Avatar, with Lyman writing much of the paper and his picture appearing on every cover. Like Oprah. The group also started buying up as many properties as they could in the Fort Hill area. In addition to writing essays and diatribes for Avatar, Lyman also wrote poetry, songs, and even a novel in 1971 called Mirror at the End of the Road. Never one for flowery speechifying, Lyman was pretty straightforward with his lyrics. One of his most well-known songs contained the following saccharine words. The washboard wasn't enlisted. I'm going to burn down the world. I'm going to tear down everything that cannot stand alone. I'm going to shove hope up your ass. I'm going to turn ideals <laughs> to shit. I am going to reduce everything that stands to rubble. And then I'm going to burn the rubble. And then I'm going to scatter the ashes. And then maybe someone will be able to see something as it really is. Watch out. It's like Travis Bickle. <laughs> I wonder who won the that poetry contest between him and Charles Manson. 
Lyman released one solo album in 1966 with the help of his followers, including Jim Queskin. As you may have guessed, the album lacks a bit of the joviality of Queskin's jug band. Avatar was becoming a real success, with a circulation of over 30,000, which is huge for a local city paper at the time. One of its Boston readers took umbrage with Lyman proclaiming himself to be God, and marched over to Fort Hill, demanding to speak with Lyman. Obviously, no one is allowed to see Lyman or speak with Lyman. He sees or speaks with you. The intruder burst through the horde of zombies and broke into Lyman's bedroom, where he told Lyman that... He was God, not Lyman. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan level twist right there. <laughs> By that point, the zombies had come in, grabbed the heretic, well, grabbed the, the intruding heretic, and tossed him out. Within a few days, all of the followers started working on a wall that would surround the Fort Hill family compound. Some followers were recruited to be armed guards to keep people out. Other followers were recruited to keep people in. This group was called the Karma Guard. Sounds like deodorant <laughs> for cults. It sounds like deodorant that you buy but never wear. Escaping Fort Hill was frowned upon and punished, as were all sorts of other minor offenses. Anyone who needed to be corrected was placed in the vault, an underground windowless cell without food or light for up to a few days. It was really just a place to think and catch up with yourself. Ah, those saladless days. Unlike Manson's family... Lyman mostly tried to stay away from violence, away from home, focusing on using media to gain recruits, newspapers, TV, music, and film. Lyman recruited the lead actors of Michael Antonioni's film Zabriskie Point, and when those two were sent on the junket to promote the movie, they did anything but. Their dead stares frightened most people and made interviews unpleasant and uncooperative. The female lead of that film, Daria Halpern, was able to eventually escape Fort Hill in the 70s and immediately fell into the cult leader we'd all love to serve, Dennis Hopper. The male lead, Michael Frechette's future, wasn't quite as cool. In 1973, Frechette led a team of followers on a bank robbery. One of the members was shot and killed by police. Frechette was caught and sent to jail. In 1975, Frechette's body was discovered in the prison rec room with a 200-pound barbell resting on his neck, and it was ruled a freak accident. In 1978, the Fort Hill family announced that Lyman had passed away mysteriously. No evidence has ever been given about his death. No death certificate, no grave, no body. The family continues even today, but they've been quiet since the mid-70s, insulated from the world. We'll have to post a link to one of the interviews with Halprin and Frechette. It has got to be the most uncomfortable TV you can ever see. It's, it's really weird. They look so weird. The interview with them on the Dick Cavett show was really bizarre. Mel Brooks 
is one of, and Rex Reed, I think, are the other two guests, and it couldn't be more awkward. And Cavett and Mel Brooks, they keep trying to kind of spur them on, just trying to kind of help them make light of anything, and it just doesn't work. It just keeps getting more and more intense. They won't talk. They won't answer questions with more than one word, and they're very defensive about nothing. Yeah, bizarre stuff. Around the same area in western Massachusetts, there was another similar commune that was making waves, albeit with fewer machine guns. The Spirit of the Brotherhood, later called the Renaissance Community, was a critical link between the free-spirited hippie communes and the more disciplined New Age communes to come. The group was led by Michael Rapunzel Metallica. You'd think if your last name was legit Metallica, you wouldn't need a nickname like Rapunzel anyways, but... Let down your hair metal, Mike. (laughs) He decided to try a solitary life in a treehouse on a blueberry farm. Eventually, he rode the lightning of the teachings of a retired bus driver and trance medium, Elwood Babbitt, to prepare for the upcoming Aquarius Age cataclysms and started gathering people to his treehouse of serenity and eventually made a farm commune. There were strict rules banning drugs, cigarettes, alcohol, and sexual promiscuity, and the members used meditation, self-sufficiency, and intense encounter group tactics to purge themselves of their imperfections. Metallica eventually went all in by creating and fronting a rock band to spread his message, called Spirit and Flesh, which was explained as not just music, but more of a inner experience of brotherhood. The band was signed by Metromedia Records and put out an album in 1970. As Metallica got a taste of fame, he, in turn, got more and more culty. He used his followers to promote his band with massive marches, interrupting daytime talk shows, spray-painting the band's name all over the city and on any rival treehouses, and staging massive call-ins to Metromedia Records, clamoring for more of that Hip new band with the sweet-ass inner experience Brotherhood sound. This, not practice, resulted in the band playing Carnegie Hall, where not many people outside of the commune bothered to attend. The album flopped, selling less than a thousand copies, as one commenter aptly described it as blue-eyed soullessness. I got the weight of the world on my shoulders got to help back cause it's my home I got the weight of the world on my shoulders I gotta help the baby cause it's my home Undeterred, Metallica renamed the band Metallica, which should have been huge, right? They released another private press record in 79, but the music was never as successful as the group itself, which grew to be one of the largest cults-slash-communes on the eastern seaboard through the running of many legitimate businesses. And nothing else mattered. And just in case you aren't full up on delusional messiahs, there was the movement called The Work which was founded by brother 
Orange Julius, a middle-aged Jewish guy who suddenly realized he was Jesus reincarnated. He called himself the sinful Messiah because he had to sin so that he could understand what it's like, which I think is a pretty good reason to sin in the first place. That's why I do it. An apocalyptic cult that wore robes and huge pendants, the work ended in the all-too-archetypal story of abuse and murder. Before it went to pot, which they would have subsequently smoked, they did have a recruitment-minded Christian rock group called The Anointed Band, who put out a single record, Seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus in the morning when you rise Seeking Jesus, won't you try him on for size Jesus, Jesus, oh how you love me so Jesus, oh Jesus, we'll follow where you go If I could go back in time to the mid to late 60s, I would have invested in the robe industry for sure. The All Saved Freak Band was one of the biggest acts of the Jesus People explosion. They had a guitarist whose skill was said to rival Hendrix's. They integrated chamber instruments years before ELO would make it chic. And they had huge labels like RCA and Columbia begging to sign them. However, despite all their talent, the band was, at its core, a vehicle for the slanted sermonizing of Larry Hill, and his direction assured that they would never meet their potential. Larry Hill was a one-legged hellfire Pentecostal preacher who worked with drug addicts, biker gang members, and juvenile delinquents in Chicago. Eventually, somehow, he started a church in rural Ohio and would invite people fleeing the grit of city life to join him for a quiet pastoral existence in the country. One man, Joe Marco, took his family to Hill's community, called the Church of the Risen Christ after the unsettling experience of the 68 Democratic Convention. Hill and Marco started a folk band which played on weekly radio broadcast in between the sermons, which beckoned more and more kids to their outfit. Eventually, they sought out a guy named Glenn Schwartz, who had publicly stated that he was forsaking rock and roll to follow Christ. Schwartz was a sensational guitarist who had been in both the James Gang and Pacific Gas and Electric, but struggled with drugs, and general hooliganism. Schwartz was a real-deal star with Frank Zappa, Janis Joplin, and Hendrix all expressing their admiration, and the Black Keys' Dan Auerbach citing him, you know, much later, as his greatest guitar influence. Hill saw the potential and recruited Schwartz to join his community and start a rock band. The reason they picked up on Schwartz is because he would do things like in the middle of a concert to stop the song and start talking about Jesus and how the whole crowd needed to find Jesus. Or they were opening for Led Zeppelin, and he came out when Led Zeppelin was playing and started throwing Bibles into the audience. I mean, he was really, really out there. He'd go to hotel rooms and fill every dresser with one. (laughs) The newly concocted group, All Saved Freak Band, then had name recognition and played weekly shows at Kent State, where kids who had just seen their government execute their peers were very amenable to joining Hill's cause. As the church numbers grew, so did the band members, which was up to 12 people at times. Hill ran the farm they lived on with an iron fist, which included daily back-breaking chores starting at 4 a.m. and prayer meetings until 1 a.m., 
Sometimes they would only eat rice for months at a time. Touring was the only respite. The band eventually recorded their first album, My Poor Generation, which received national airplay and brought several labels according. Hill would not think to sign his band off to a label. How low can a snake crawl? Hill was starting his slow, now somewhat cliched conversion from preacher to prophet. He started talking about the Antichrist taking control of a communist force from China, Russia, and Cuba. His band of merry guerrilla prophets was the only way to stop the Dark Lord, so he implemented mandatory martial arts and exercise regiments and dug underground tunnels around their farm. They also, of course, started stockpiling weapons, which they carried with them to shows in instrument cases just in case the shit hit the fan while on the road. Several members died in late-night car crashes, probably in no small part to exhaustion, and Marco was disfigured and lost use of his hands after getting electrocuted while working. Hill used the tragedies to further his testament by suggesting the power of martyrdom, it's like a group of lead characters from a Flannery O'Connor story. Yeah, the one-legged hellfire preacher turned crazy person. Yeah. The band kept on recording. Their second album, For Christians, Elves, and Lovers, was a bizarre, gentle folk rock ode to Christ and Tolkien. And lovers, I guess. Hill is even dressed like Gandalf on the front cover. Or maybe Saruman, am I right? Here's a hobbit-sized chunk of the song, Valley of Decision. Get to know your husband, seek to obey. Pale horseback riders are coming this way. I don't know exactly, but I will say soon. Then, Glenn Schwartz's family hired anti-cult counselor Ted Patrick to kidnap the guitarist and deprogram the cult's influence. Well, that didn't take, and Schwartz was back with the group to record their spiteful masterpiece, Brainwashed, about the incident. Here's the anti-anti-cult song, Seek Him. Hill became even more authoritarian, regularly using beatings and corporal punishment on residents for minor offenses like wearing dirty socks. 
Eventually, the law became involved after Hill's wife was seen disciplining a child with a bullwhip that Hill had christened White Judge. Ugh. After that, the group slowly fell apart, even though one final album was released in 1980, Sower. The band is now regarded as a legend of Christian psych, and their dark and painful backstory was fully detailed in a book by former member Jed Stevenson, which was published in 2015. Back to San Francisco in 1969, a member of that same Jesus People movement named Jim Palisari left San Francisco for Seattle, where he joined up with the Jesus People Army. That group, unfortunately, was being taken over by David Berg's Children of God. As you may remember from Part 1, David Berg is disgusting. Palisari quickly recognized how batshit Crazy Berg was and left Seattle and moved to Milwaukee. In Milwaukee, Palisari and his wife opened a coffee house called the Jesus Christ Power House, started a newspaper called Street Level, a communal school called the Jesus People Discipleship Training Center, and a band called The Sheep. He also fell into a group fronted by John Heron. John Heron would eventually front the Jesus People USA, or Japusa, seriously. <laughs> That group of 400 would all live together in a Chicago apartment building where all sorts of standard, horribly sad cult tropes took place. Palisari broke from Heron long before that happened. He left once he realized that Heron was taking $10 out of the communal pot at each service so he could buy cheap wine and a ticket to a porno theater. Palisari took 30 of his Jesus People group to Sweden and spent a lot of time in Helsinki, Finland. It was there that his band, The Sheep, recorded and released their first album, Jesus Rock, in 1972. The extra E is for Evangelical. The album is a hard rock and psych triumph. Most of the songs are in English, with two being in Finnish. Here's a clip of their opening track, Multitudes. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. The group continued to tour Europe and were invited in London to take part in an expose on the Children of God. Palisari teamed up with other groups participating in that expose and formed the Jesus Family. This group produced the rock opera Lonesome Stone, which is a musical history of the early Jesus Freak movement. An album of the show was released, and here's a clip of that title track. So proud and cool, but it's just a 
just 19 years old. It's sort of like Jesus Christ Superstar, but if it was only about the followers? I think Palisari said that those other rock operas like Jesus Christ Superstar and what's the one? Godspell. Godspell, that's right. He thought that those were just sort of watered down and he wanted like a real message to go out. Hmm. Palisari, along with a few others, moved to Vancouver Island in Canada and formed a new commune called Highway Missionary Society. The sheep were no more, but a new band was started called Servant. They put out six albums and were known for two things. Number one, they were the first Christian rock band to use a laser light show. Oh, that was them. (laughs) And number two, they gave Petra their start. That's like enough to put you in the Rock Hall of Fame right there. Palisari continued in the Christian rock music industry, starting another record label, promoting bands like the Newsboys and White Cross, and narrating a documentary about Lonnie Frisbee, who is one of the most well-known and earliest of the Jesus Freak Flyers. Perhaps there was no one single cult leader that intrigued us more than the man known as Zendik. He truly is an irresistible force. Lawrence Wolfing was born in El Paso, Texas in 1920, but mostly grew up in Los Angeles. His father was a Golden Gloves boxer and an opera singer, and his mother was a bookie. By the time he reached 32, Wolfing had already spent time building hot rods, flying small-engine planes, running a nightclub where he also sometimes sat in on drums for jazz bands, and joined the family business as a bookie himself. Wolfing slowed his pace and began writing. At first, it was mostly beatnik poetry and lyrics. He'd spend time at coffee houses hanging out with other artists. And in 1957, he and his ballerina girlfriend moved to Paris. It was there that he was introduced to Allen Ginsberg and some other also-ran beat writers. While in France, he wrote A Quest Among the Bewildered, which was a memoir because who doesn't want a memoir about a writer that no one's ever heard of? From Paris, Wolfing studied with Anais Nin, who encouraged him to hold off on the memoir and start working on a novel instead. It would be much more marketable. For nearly a decade spent in Spain, Wolfing worked on his novel called Zendik, which was the name of the protagonist. Wolfing was very proud of his 900-page tome and sent it off to publishers. When they all asked that edits be made, Wolfing, now calling himself Zendik, refused and withdrew it from publishing houses completely. He never tried to have it published again. Zendik moved back to L.A., where he met an aspiring actress named Carol Merson. The two were smitten immediately with each other and stayed together for nearly 40 years. In 1969, the two started Zendik Farm, an artist commune designed for physical, psychic, psychological, and cultural mavericks. Zendik already changed his name to Wolf Zendik, and Carol had dropped the C and changed hers to Errol Wolf. Clever. Lever. (laughs) (laughs) I don't like C's either. They don't they're confused about what they are. (laughs) Are they S's? Are they K's? I'm I'm with Errol. (laughs) They're so unfusing. 
Continue, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was on the farm that Zendek's creativity really blossomed. He wrote poetry, songs, essays, and even started back on his memoirs. He also painted and started playing music, even creating his own instruments, one of which was used for a lot of his recordings. It was called an itar. Didn't like G-U either, apparently. Which is an eight-stringed cross between a sitar and a guitar. During this time, in addition to releasing hundreds of hours of recorded monologues about society's woes, Zendik also started releasing albums. His best album, Strontium Rain, is frighteningly enchanting. Long, evil-sounding lyrics and music, with his voice, more often talking than singing, often employing a satanic tremolo or haunting echoes. There's a Black Sabbath undercurrent to pieces of it, but Zendek's music is much more interesting and experimental. Here's a clip of just such a track, the 11-minute Strontium Rain. Around the kettle, while they Had Zendik harnessed his musical ideas and focused only on that, he could have had a decent career. He's clearly very intelligent, a solid lyricist, and he knows how to sing his songs with perfect verve and bloodlust. But the music is very difficult to acquire. Here's a clip of my favorite of his songs, Ancient in My Eyes, which is less Sabbath and more foreboding danger. Let's drop the rush. Drop the rush. That is both electric and mad. Electric and mad. Mad in the style and pride. Mad in the style and pride They call, they call now They call now They call now But ancient But ancient, ancient in my eyes Ancient in my eyes Ancient in my eyes That song is legit great, though. It really is. Yeah, it's terrifying, but it is great. It's one I've listened to many times now. Zendik Varm expanded into several states around the country as it also devolved from an artist-friendly, ecologically-minded commune into a full-fledged cult, where Zendik reigned supreme. He was in charge of any relationships in the commune, dictating who could and could not have sex, while he had sex and children with many women living on the farm. Eventually, art was non-existent, as people living there worked from dawn till dusk at the whims of Zendik. And when he passed away in 1999, Errol Wolfe took control with an even tighter grasp. After 99, Errol and her farm-produced band started a public access show and also released albums of her own. 
her songs, however, aren't worth listening to. At best, it's caterwauling. Or, should I say, adderwalling. <laughs> Although we've thus far focused on mystical-minded music from the vinyl age beyond, in reality, music dedicated to strange beliefs has long been bewildering audiences. Russian composer Alexander Scriabin evolved from standard classical composition to making music that was significantly more challenging, atonal, and dissonant to correspond with his personal theosophy focused on metaphysics and perception. Scriabin, who would later proclaim in a notebook that he was God and would write music influenced by belief in a mystic chord and synesthesia, where sounds can be perceived in other senses, like vision of colors or scents. From 1903 to 1915, he worked on the piece Mysterium, which would remain unfinished at the time of his passing. This might have been a good thing, because he believed that once it was completed, a week-long performance of it in the Himalayas would be encored with the end of the world and humans being usurped by nobler beings. Here's what that might have sounded like. Carlos Castaneda was one of the top-selling authors of the 70s with his non-fiction fictional accounts of his time training with Yaki shaman Don Juan Matus. He spun his supposed experiences into an organization called Clear Green that promoted the practice of tensegrity, which is modernized practices of movements that were sort of magical fast passes. We don't really understand it either. Castaneda was immensely popular, dubbed the father of the New Age movement, and moved with some of his fellow travelers of awareness to a large house in California, where he more or less withdrew from the public eye, kind of like Steve Gutenberg. Of course, weirdness was abound with Castaneda. He would send out body doubles for photo shoots, and there was at least one unexplained death related to his mystery mansion minions. His pseudo-ethnographical teachings about the non-ordinary reality stirred the souls of many people, including Nick Padron, who wrote and released a prog rock opera called Diablero, about Castaneda's writings. Thick and violent, extending into exploding gusts. It opens and it slips through. Dead men slide through I've always with this man, the subject of my trade. I may not be all in jail, I say I'm the same intent. But I just got to understand the secret is of desert plants. Come on. Timothy Wiley is a channeler. Part of a spiritual community called The Process, Wiley found that after a near-death experience, he could suddenly hold casual conversations with all sorts of 
non-human intelligences, light, angels, extraterrestrials, and dolphins using art, writing, and music. Here's a bit of light chakra maintenance instructions from his 1998 cassette tape, Dolphin Vision Quest. Perfect for those looking for a higher porpoise. As you breathe in, breathe the light into the chakra in which the energy is accumulating. And as you breathe out, breathe out the darkness that has accumulated in that chakra. Another channeler, Paul Solomon, might be the nicest cult leader out there. A professed psychic and seer, Solomon started the Fellowship of the Inner Light, where he used a metaphysical presence called the Source, not Father Yod's members-only diner, to relay messages from Akashic Records, Atlantis, and all aspects of time, space, and matter. More importantly, he worked as a humanitarian assisting Mother Teresa with Dignity International and was nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to liberate enslaved children in Thailand. Also, one of his followers, J.D. Emanuel, made some unbelievably transcendent cosmic synth ambient music, like this work called Focusing Within. J.D. Emanuel stuff has been recently reissued and is essential for New Age fans. Both of you. Much like pomegranate kombucha, elongated male ponytails, and quartz-powered tiaras. I love pomegranate kombucha. I can see that. Ekinkar is the self-proclaimed religion of light and sound. It teaches that simple spiritual practices can allow you to soul travel by using primal energy of light and sound to help you leave your body to chill in some other dimensions. I wonder if they ever soul travel on a soul plane. Ooh. The most famous of these practices is chanting who, which is one long drawn out who, like drawn out for a half an hour. Who can expand your awareness, he help can. you experience the... <laughs> <laughs> As I was saying, who can expand your awareness, help you experience divine love, heal ailments, improve your pinball skills, mend broken hearts, provide solace and grief, understand Twin Peaks perfectly, and reach a higher state of being? You can who along with us if you like. This one is at 432 hertz, which apparently matters. Don't worry. We checked. It's not the brown note. But 
if that isn't enough who for you, then don't worry. There are plenty of other songs encouraging you to do the who. Like this one by one-time leader, Shri Darwin Gross, who sounds a bit like Kermit the Frog. If Kermit the Frog were a junkie, establishing a rainbow connection by any means necessary. For those at the grassroots and those in doubt Who just don't understand Let your ears hear these few words Give no thought of where you are For the Master is always with you For in soul you can be free Hansadutta Swami was a huge factor in spreading Hare Krishna and quickly rose to the rank of guru before being arrested for possession of weapons and later being implicated in a shooting incident. He put out several records of Hare Krishna folk rock, including one ominously called Nice But Dead, which refers to the teaching that only the soul is alive, while the body is at best nice but dead. Here's a swingin' Raga country waltz called The Holy Name that gazes at life through a bloodshot third eye. Dance to the name, rich teeth have come blind and lame. You cured the multitudes with the name. Honor, dishonor, pleasure and pain. Kicked out as worthless by this holy name. Bad of the money, women and fame. The Khalsa String Band was the house folk troupe for 3HO Ashram, an American sect of Sikh Dharma which revolved around Yogi Bhajan. 3HO was noted for making members follow stringent yoga routines, subtle thought reformation, and singular attention to their yogi. The band members all changed their surnames to Sing and recorded one of the prettiest mellow folk records of the era. As far as string bands go, this one is incredible. That's a folk rock joke for you, Joe. Oh, I get it. (laughs) Just making sure. One thing we found while researching these episodes is that some Christians have a profound hate of yoga, with some calling it the discipline of death. In the early to mid-20th century, some gurus and spiritual teachers had arrived in America from India with an idea of combining Eastern and Western faiths, with a sprinkling in of yoga. It first took hold around 1910 in Spokane, Washington by Prince A.K. Mozumdar. Today was a good day. I didn't have to listen to Prince AK. (laughs) (laughs) He had a church and a following there, and he moved it down the coast to Hollywood, where he built a replica of the Taj Mahal with money from celebrity followers. 
he actually seemed sincere about his teaching and faith and even donated his Taj Mahal to the YMCA so that it could be used as a camp for children. The Y, however, sold that camp to the Unification Church, a.k.a. the Moonies. They flipped it, I think is what they call that. One of the biggest current cults known for mass weddings. Don't worry, they have records of horrible music too, like this MGM-produced record, Little Angel Smile. By the 1950s, there were small branches of Mozumdar's teachings sprouting up along the West Coast, with one in particular starting in San Francisco, calling itself the Church of Christian Yoga. The founder of that church was called Father Subra Muniaya, formerly Robert Hansen. Hansen started out as a ballet dancer and after World War II made several trips to India as part of a dance troupe. Eventually, he converted to Hindu and became Savaya Subramuniya Swami. When he returned to the States, he was able to gain a following from his artist friends who were always looking for more exotic ways to entertain themselves. Hipsters. Hansen, in 1957, created the first Hindu temple in the U.S., and then in 59 established the Church of Christian Yoga by partnering up with a woman who already had her own large flock, Mother Christney. Christney had been more Christian, like Marie was more country to Donnie's more Hindu rock. Parishioners would chant Christian psalms, meditate, sing, and play music. And wear robes, obviously. From 1962 to 1965, the group purchased an old brewery in Nevada, moved there, and merged with yet another group, the Himalayan Academy, who were monk trainers. And finally, in 1967... All those pre-monks, Hindu-Christian, and Christian Hindus took a break from all that yoga and recorded one of the best psych albums we've yet heard, called Turn On, Music for the Hip at Heart by Christian Yoga Church. Information about this album is so difficult to come by that many people, for a while, thought it was just a rumor or a hoax. It's basically 50 minutes of people playing whatever they feel like playing and chanting whatever they feel like chanting. It was recorded live with no edits. People join and leave randomly and simultaneously play completely different tunes. Like Ario Speedwagon. But in this case, it works. The combinations of chanting, kazoos, tubas, running water, flutes, gongs, tablas, more running water. I think you get the idea. Seems like it could have been a Father Yod album if his drug of choice had been cough syrup. Oh, 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 oh,
The Divine Light Mission was a huge spiritual movement led by Guru Hans G. Maharaj, until an untimely death when his eight-year-old son Prem Rewat took over. It spread quickly with tens of thousands of practitioners visiting ashrams in the States to join the million in India. Rewat, only 16, wanted to capitalize on the success of the growing numbers and decided to hold a three-day festival at the Astrodome called Millennium 73, with speeches, meditations, dances, and rock bands performing. There was a prediction made that up to 400,000 would attend and that the Astrodome would levitate. Additionally, aliens would visit the Earth, the stock market would crash, and earthquakes would occur in Denver and New York. The 20,000 who did attend were disappointed. The financial fallout from the event was the beginning of the end, but there were several interesting albums created under the DLM banner. Blue Aquarius was a 50-piece psychedelic gospel funk choir that released an album on Stax Records, but sadly doesn't sound as amazing as you might imagine. Here's How Many Lifetime. We could only see a thing if it was ten feet tall. But then he showed me a lot of things I thought I'd never understand. He showed me a lot of things I thought I'd never understand. I got a bang, Roger, bang, Roger, bang, Roger. Thank you, Betty, wait a lot, Jack. A DLM band called Apostles put out a record called Living Gospel in 1973, all about the greatness of the guru, including this British folk revival sounding song, Leela. Interestingly, two Austin music legends, Tommy Hancock and Jimmy Dale Gilmore, were both active in DLM. At a young age, David Spangler merged with a timeless presence of oneness, or so he says. This supernatural amalgamation, as they are wont to do, ended up revealing a whole history of reincarnation and metaphysical techniques. So Spangler no relation to Egon, set up an institute in Wisconsin called Lorian Association. A band, the New Troubadours, was established to spread the word of Spangler, who also fronted the band. They had a couple of loopy folk records in the early 70s, climaxing with this great song, Earthseed. And now a sacred song of Emerald Guardians of the Kathara team. Their primary teacher, Yasha Asha Yana, 
was chosen to learn biospiritual healing practices from ancient holographic plates called Chilantic Sciences. Trying to keep genuine ascension viable for all humanity, which seems important, I guess, and makes us feel as though we owe them a debt of gratitude. Here's Torin Technique Combination Singing, which sounds like what the LARPers who pretend to be elves might sing in their Walmart tents. The Federation of Damanhar is an Italian neo-pagan cult that has an elaborate class system and a veritable cornucopia of deities they worship, including Horus, Pan, Lucifer, and dolphins. They're mostly known for two things. Their impressive underground temples, which they allegedly found while excavating a mountain, and the concerts that they hold for plants. The group has said that they have been able to record plants singing using an intricate electrode in the dirt system. We sadly missed this one for our Record for Plants episode, but here is Chestnut and Birch. These two trees apparently were hugely influenced by Vangelis when they were just seedlings. how they try to make dirt system sound important when really they could just say ground (laughs) there isn't much out there about the 80s children of one california new age cult but we sure do like their neo-funk single by a singer called no one that's k-n-o-w-o-n-e if the content of the groove wasn't about an ambiguous cult it could have gone all the way here's the not very ironic Unfunky. Everybody's living in pollution. Everybody, everybody, everybody has to make a change. Okay. You might think that the world needs changing. You might think that the world is fine. But if you listen to what I'm saying, you'll have to agree. It's easy to see. There's no relation, but we did also discover a strange private press album from 1969, identically titled Children of One. There's almost no information about the record other than it was from a strange commune out of New York, so we can't confirm it's a cult. But it's really good stuff that is, unlike most of this episode, worth checking out. Also, coincidentally, pretty unfunky. Thank you. 
Frederick Lenz's eighth life had been pretty good to him. Not like that fifth life, that was a real stick in the mud. Better known as Rama, Lenz was a spiritual teacher, author, rad snowboarder, martial artist, software designer, and overall gilded New Age millionaire emperor. He had many happy pay-to-pray followers who he preached to about enlightenment and computer programming. He additionally fronted a rock band called Zazen, that produced 31 records in 13 years. Numbers that would make Guided by Voices jealous. Eventually, his lavish lifestyle of mansions, jets, clothes, sex, drugs, and Unix networks failed him, as Lenz took 50 tabs of Valium, dressed in his best Versace, and started his journey to the off-world by walking into the dark, frigid waters of an inlet by his home called Conscience Bay. Here's Zazen's What is Dancing. I asked the Zen master, what is dancing? Dr. Malachi Z. York is probably not a doctor. He's also probably the only cult leader to manage both a record label and a small ancient Egyptian city. So maybe it's honorary. His ever-changing ministry and ideology started in the 60s with quasi-Islamic and black Hebrew movement as well as black power political ideals. He then started adding more and more absurd components to his teachings involving UFOs, cryptozoology, and conspiracies like New World Order and Bilderberg, not to be confused with Build-A-Bear. He and his group went through a dizzying amount of name changes, eventually settling on his religious movement being called the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors, or the Nuwabians. He claims to have written thousands of books about its belief system and had his followers go through the usual cult rigmarole of laboring for free, donating all their worldly possessions, and sharing of the spiritual wives and daughters. Moving around for years, possibly to evade law enforcement, in 1993, the Nuwabians settled at Ramate, a 400-acre compound in rural Eatonton, Georgia, where there were Egyptian-style obelisks, statues of gods and goddesses, sphinxes, and pyramids that blasted piped meditation tones and chants throughout the Dominion 24-7. Let's back up to the late 70s and 80s. Dr. York found a way to step away from the strict edicts of his part-time devotion to Islam to further his other ambition, funky disco music. He believed he could bring more people to hear his words by getting them to feel his vibe. He started a recording studio and label called Passion Productions and performed as a singer in several of his own groups, Jackie and the Starlights, The Students, and Disco Passion who had a creepily aggressive dance floor hit with Don't Stop My Love. Don't you ever stop my love? Don't stop my love? Don't you ever stop my love? 
However, he understood the best way to electric slide into the hearts of the masses was by using the most suggestive of all musical styles, slow jams. Here's Only a Dream from his 1985 solo record, New. Of course, if we had to choose, we prefer this synth-funk roller rink groove, Shake and Skate, which surely had all the kids snake-walking into his welcoming confines. His influence was real. The Passion label released a ton of music, and he worked with a number of big names. Blue Magic, Lionel Richie, not really very blind Stevie Wonder, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the Delphonics, Africa Bombata, and MF Doom. He compels young rappers to integrate his teachings into their rhymes. A portrait of him makes a cameo in an early Jay-Z video. It's even suggested somewhere that he ghost-wrote Love Train by the OJs. But then again, he also claimed to be an extraterrestrial teacher from the planet Risque. So, grain of salt, maybe. Things fell apart in 2004 for the doctor when he was sentenced to 135 years for molestation, racketeering, and fraud, though many followers still seek to free him. Incidentally, his son Jacob is a well-regarded hip-hop producer who has worked with Notorious B.I.G., Lil' Kim, Junior Mafia, and Cameron. He has severed all ties with the new audience. As many of you may recall, on March 15, 1990, the world did not end. Much to the surprise of Elizabeth Clare Prophet and her followers who were holed up in a bomb shelter in the mountains of Montana. The Lighthouse Summit was started in 1958 by Mark Prophet, which was a really fortuitous name. His wife, Elizabeth, a.k.a. Guru Ma, which also happens to be my nickname, took over the group after his death and expanded the name to Church Universal and Triumphant. Zany ideas started taking hold as Guru Ma started believing she was the reincarnation of Marie Antoinette and Guinevere, and had a direct pathway with several important holy conduits called Ascended Masters, including Jesus, Hercules, Buddha, Confucius, Shiva, and dolphins. She also preached that the nuclear war was coming, so they built a 700-plus person shelter in a compound in Montana and stocked up on food and firearms. In the process, they spilled a bunch of chemicals and destroyed the local ecosystem, but with the world ending... Was that really such a priority? The date was so widely publicized that many stores experienced shortages before the big day of reckoning. Well, when the sun rose on March 16th, many members lost faith and left. Prophet eased back on the doomsday business, but kept on about the dangers of 
uncontrolled anger, the use of profanity, indecent exposure, violence, harm to others, the consumption of alcohol and tobacco products, and playing rock music, jazz, rap, polka, or other associated types of body music. Some of these lessons and teachings escaped on tape and made their way to a stunned listenership via a bootleg called Sounds of American Doomsday Cults, Volume 14. As best anyone could tell, there was no previous 13 volumes. Vice has a fascinating article about how the tapes were leaked out by the son of Elizabeth Clare Prophet and made their way into the hands of musicians and independent radio DJs. You'd think she would have seen that coming. <laughs> the tapes are truly incredible in their ludicrousness. First, there is the Great Divine Reactor's Call, where a preacher calls for the judgment and striking down of the unholy and children-corrupting pop music by the violent flame of sacred fire. Here's a snippet of the list of guilty musicians. And working specifically through these individuals, for whom we call forth the judgment of the sacred fire in this hour before the throne of Almighty God, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bruce Springsteen, Tina Turner, David Bowie, Van Halen, Madonna, Huey Lewis and the News, The Cars, Herbie Hancock, Bonnie Tyler, Stevie Nicks, Men at Work, ZZ Top, Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson, Weird Al Yankovic, Cindy Looper, Pink Floyd, The Pretenders, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Elton John, Neil Young, Sheena Easton, Patti Smith and Scandal, Fashion, Big Country, Morris Day and The Time. Well, at least we agree with the inclusion of Billy Joel. It was basically the first version of LCD sound systems losing my edge. But that is nothing compared to the CUT's chanting, called a decree, which is a gnarly mix of glossolalia, tuvan throat singing, and the guy from the micro-machine commercials. The tape has them going on like this for 27 minutes. We fully encourage you to carve out a half hour and take the trip into the compound. Sometimes it is the music that makes the cult, as is the case with Paul Luzchuk, who was so horrified from liberating the death camps in World War II that he sought an answer to his question, why do we go to war and kill our brothers? A professor told him that academia had no answers for him, so he decided to do his own research and set up his own institute. After earning a doctorate, he needed money, so he put on some buckskins and changed his name to Theocarus Doka Anthropotis Lingo and started a career as a mountain man folk singer. It worked, as he gained fame and riches quickly through television exposure on Groucho Marx's You Bet Your Life and game show winnings on NBC's High Low as Lingo the Drifter. He immediately used his money to buy a mountain in Colorado and started an institute for dormant brain research. He developed a meditation therapy method of unlocking the full potential of the brain, which leads to abilities like ESP, speaking with animals, and multiple orgasms, like a hundred of them, which is 98 and a half more than my personal record. My career. <laughs> Seems like you just your day would be just tough to get through with that many. Make running errands really tough. Yeah, when would you pee? 
<laughs> Where do you find the time? If you unlock the full potential of your brain, you wouldn't have to ask that question, Joe. Soon, students, patients, and fellow researchers would give up everything to stay at the mountain and learn from Lingo, who would often instruct them using a real human brain. Incidentally, it was willed to him by the professor who encouraged his independent studies. Here's a bit of Lingo the Drifter checking his amygdala and singing his most popular song and a hobo's most popular drink, rye whiskey. Rye whiskey, rye whiskey, whiskey, I cried. If I don't get some whiskey, well, I think I will die. Well, it's a beefsteak when I'm hungry, rye whiskey when I'm dry. The greenbacks when I'm hard up and religion when I Tim Maia was one of the wildest and most influential Brazilian musicians of the late 60s, early 70s with his soulful funk and samba rock. As he was putting the finishing touches on a double album for RCA Victor, he picked up a book at a friend's house called Universo M. Desencado, or Universe in Disenchantment. The book, one of 12 volumes of surely light reading, was written by Manuel Jacinto Coelho who was abducted by aliens and returned with a message about how humans need to maximize the usage of their pineal glands to achieve natural balance. Maya was so taken with the work that he joined the sect called Rationale Culture, quit drugs and red meat, and changed all the lyrics to his album to reflect this UFO-sanctioned enlightenment. RCA wasn't too fond of his new direction, so they dropped him. He funded the record himself and released it as Tim Maya Rationale Volumes 1 and 2, and he split the profits with the group. About a year later, Maya got fed up with the group and went back to the grotto and his playboy ways. The record, from his quick trip on the crazy train, is pretty awesome. Claude Sellers was just your average French pop singer, race car driver, journalist when the aliens descended upon him in a volcanic crater and saved him from this boring, lackluster existence. The visiting Elohim told him, in fluent French, which was very convenient, the message that needed to be spread throughout humanity, and eventually took him to meet some other fellow ambassadors like Buddha, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and dolphins. These out-of-this-world experiences inspired the Realian movement, which encourages liberal ethical practices, in particular sexual experimentation, daily meditation, and unlocking physical immortality via cloning. In 2002, they were successful in this endeavor with the first human clone, Baby Eve, though they didn't bother showing their work to anyone. Sellers, now Rael, is unfortunately a pretty talented folk singer and musician. Here's a bit of him singing. Elle danse face à la mer. Elle est belle comme une sirène. Elle danse face à la mer. 
Et moi j'en suis fou, moi je l'aime. The aliens were apparently pretty busy with this abducting business, which is surprising as probing takes time if you want it done right. Because they also beamed up Alan Noonan as a selection for the New World Comforter and Human Channel for the everlasting gospel of the Space Brothers with ESP and telepathy abilities. When he was returned, his new name was Alan Michael, and he would start the One World Family Commune, chock full of natural food restaurants, LSD, and FaceTime sessions with the ETs. As the aliens were socialists, he also ran for president under the Utopian Synthesis Party in 1980, where he was just edged out by Reagan by only 99.8% of the vote. Probably did better than Carter. In 1976, the commune's band Quasar, led by Michael on vocals, released a record of some heavy white funk with an intergalactic groove and a human bill of rights penned by the aliens. It was called To Serve Man, I think. Here's the track Share the World. They recorded a follow-up that has this great Roger Miller in space track called We Love You. The good news is that with all these space invaders hanging around down here, there is a group dedicated to help anyone who has been touched by an alien, indecently or otherwise. Of course, for every E.T. Alf or Mork, you are just as likely to run into a xenomorph or a predator or a the thing. And then there are those big-eyed gray guys who just got a probe. Prober's gonna probe, you know what I mean? The Anomalous Mind Management Abductee Contactee Helpline, or AMAC, is a support group for anyone who has been abducted and needs some counseling or their micro-implants removed. Well, one thing leads to another, and eventually this hotline grew into UFO escapee conferences and conventions. Eventually, it was decided that people who are violated by extraterrestrials could heal their probe holes by telling their stories through songs and an album was produced. Think song poems by extraterrestrial abductees. Highly illogical. Here's Doug Degnan's 
on Stellar. Lightstorm is a band that's traversed a strange path to what they call the divine light of creation. Los Angeles hippie couple Jonima and Kalusa Wintergate started following the famous Indian guru Sathya Sai Baba and sort of became his official rock group and released under a record label he made for them. Jonima had been releasing music since the 50s, but in the late 60s shifted to more cosmic spiritual music and released a psychedelic record called Warning. They continued the trip by releasing more and more music exclusively about the guru, including this gem called Ride On To Joy. Musically, they took a strange twist and progressed significantly with having a sort of trippy folk to glam new wave sound with their next two records, Creation Earth, Who Am I, and 33 and a Third, the latter of which is surprisingly sexual. We will hear one of those songs in full in a bit, so you may want to slip into something more comfortable. Then they tried their hand at movies, making a perplexingly gory softcore comedy horror flick called Boarding House, which has become a, wait for it, cult classic. (laughs) Synanon was a drug rehabilitation clinic that veered out of control pretty quickly into a violent cult from the 1950s into the 1990s. Reformed alcoholic Chuck Diedrich decided that kicking the habit involved going through the game, where addicts are trapped in a room and constantly abused and belittled until they are broken down psychologically and dependent on the program. I call this Thanksgiving. This so-called treatment program soon turned into a human progressive group requiring a lifetime commitment and becoming the tax-free Church of Synanon. They also had a radio station in the compound that sadistically allowed people to listen in on various people's games. But it also played some original music by inmates slash patients. This is one such follower, Bruce Gilbert, with a track called Brainwashed. I used to make my living by robbing stores all over the neighborhood. I cheated and lied and I never cried. 
Cause I was always up to lots of no good Till I found a little place to save my soul To get back on the track and get under control And now I'm brainwashed People say I'm brainwashed A few records came out of the clinic as well. A 1962 jazz record by Joe Pass called Sounds of Synanon and a jazz rock cantata called Prince of Peace by the Synanon Choir that opens with a song called Arise Shine that triumphantly rings out as if Ennio Morricone and Swamp Thing were rising hand in hand from the murky depths. Synanon's M.O. turned more violent to include regular beatings and even placing a rattlesnake in the mailbox of a lawyer who was suing the organization. Hey, I got maracas in the mail. <laughs> Legal troubles eventually overwhelmed the program, and it thankfully shut down. If you're looking for something a bit more sparkly, you can try out Ruth Heflin's Calvary Pentecostal Camp. Flanked by a Brazilian holy woman named Sylvania, Heflin's preaching and singing causes enraptured worshippers to start oozing oil and discharging gold dust from their hair and lungs. Then they use the fresh glitter ejaculate to anoint the sick and needy. Like if Jerry Falwell was also a middle school cheerleader. Here's some of Heflin's precious ore-evoking singing. Let him hear your voice let your voice ascend as if it's ascending the ladder. Let it ascend. Run by run, let it ascend. Wait, why am I chafing all of a sudden? Why did my pants get tighter? In the mood for a slightly more intimate cult, maybe try Love for Life. They are an off-the-grid, though with an expansive website and recording studio, six-person domestic family farm cult that seem pretty normal until they start talking about their home as a Garden of Eden, with the rest of us being brainwashed clones blindly following the Freemason bloodline reptilians that run the system. The music is pretty great, though. Like shoegaze cult music. Suck it, Kevin Shields, you lizard man. Feeling stuffed yet? No worries. 
Breatharianism posits that you can exist without food as long as you get plenty of sun and inhalation of cosmic microdust. The pseudoscientific practice has been around for a long time, but there are two prominent current proponents, Wiley Brooks and Jasmuheen. They both have an overabundance of screwy ideas to accompany the not-eating thing, involving expanding genes, McDonald's, and quantum dividing. But both agree that chanting and song are critical factors to starvation enlightenment. Here's Jasmuheen's song, Yes. Just say yes. Just say yes. Just say yes to the rhythm of love in the fields. Just say yes to enjoying wisdom's great yield. Just ask for delivery on all levels of your being to feel the pure pulse of our intelligence. Unfortunately, obviously, several people have perished from following these teachings. Jasmuheen denies any responsibility. Brooks, however, says that anyone who might have died from his religion probably didn't take his $100,000 immortality workshop first, or they might be Illuminati. You gotta pay for the immortality workshop. You can't, can't scrimp on that. And there's no shortage of modern cults who have expanded their empires through the powers of mass media, business acumen, and of course, a fish barrel of gullibility. Take, for example, the Cosmopop, trademark, stylings of Arizonian yuppie shama Gabriel of Uranthia, and his musical act, Talisfan and the Bright and Morning Star Band. According to old G of U, Cosmopop came down from the Pleiades to be infused with Celtic music, which honestly explains away Clannad. The New Age conglomerate owns ashrams, community centers, restaurants, art spaces, and of course a radio station that constantly airs their music and teachings to the unknowing masses. Brace yourself, this music makes Yanni sound as intense as Merciful Fate with pan flutes. The Church of Euthanasia existed somewhere between ecological warfare, an elaborate prank, a parody religion, and a genuine cult. The group aimed to raise awareness of the environmental cost of overpopulation. They upheld one singular commandment of, Thou shall not procreate, and often used shocking publicity stunts, including an abrasive Jerry Springer appearance, and mass media projects to spread their message and enrage conservative religious groups. Their leader, Chris Corda, a former DJ, unleashed several club singles with anti-capitalist and anti-human messages. Their best-known track was released on Kevorkian Records, of course, in 1993, bearing the name of their controversial macabre slogan, Save the Planet, Kill Yourself. Kill Yourself. Do your leaders lie to you? Why? Do so many of you believe these lies? Explain your strange customs. 
Even more bizarre is a recent trend where people are starting to worship entities and ideas from pop culture. And many of these groups have musical components as well. Sort of cosplay religions, but taken very seriously by the zealous defenders. They range from mock religions to federally recognized ones. There's the Big Lebowski-inspired Church of the Latter-day Dude, Jediism, Matrixism, the Society of the Cylon, and the Insane Clown Posse's Juggalo Faith, which offers a baptism by Fago. Certainly, this isn't anything new with Hubbard, Castaneda, and the Church of All Worlds, which was inspired by Robert Heinlein's Stranger in a Strange Land. It's still a little hard to grok, especially the sect of Gadget Hackwrench, a group of Russian kids dressed up in monk robes and carrying hardware store tiki torches, worshipping the uncomfortably buxom, technology-wielding mousette from Disney's long-gone cartoon Chippendale Rescue Rangers as a divine being. Gadgetology even has a theology including the animated deity's ability to grant wishes based on chants directed at a colored poster of her. They have songs for her, too. We scoured the internet for them with no luck. We only got some Russian computer viruses. They seem to be completely wiped off the web, probably by the New World Order, or maybe some jealous Looney Tunes executives. Any former gadget worshippers out there, if you do have some songs, go ahead and send us an email at highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. We gotta hear that stuff. And of course, there is Flat Earth Rock and Roll. Those guys live on the edge, I tell you. I use my eyes and I can see the world is flat. They say trust NASA, but I won't be doing that. Their videos are fake and all the tactics fly. They'll do anything to cut the ties we There is so much more out there. We just had to stop ourselves and salvage what small part of our sanity that remained. With the instant global exposure that the internet promises, more would-be spiritual leaders emerge out of the dark web daily. The lunacy is here for the long run. However, at the end of the day, we're really not here to cast aspersions on people's beliefs and how they express these beliefs. How some people might think that spending thousands of dollars on plastic disc and then taking hundreds of hours listening, writing, and making podcasts about them might be a sign of similar sort of derangement. It's everyone's world. We need to try to accept as much as we can, as long as it doesn't hurt, exploit, or infringe on others, which, unfortunately, a lot of these groups do. Maybe the only truth that can be ascertained from the songs and stories of the last two episodes is that music is truly powerful. Wield it carefully, friends. With great power comes great responsibility to rock. Just like last episode, we do want to acknowledge Micah and the Music of Mind Control, which is a show on WFMU. If you like this stuff, he's delivering it an hour a week, every week, and he finds some of the craziest stuff. We certainly took a lot of his discoveries for this, but uh, it's a great show. Check it out. Maybe throw him some money when it comes drive time. I know I will be. If you're into the stuff at all, you got to listen to it. They're all archived. They're great. I also want to say thanks to Mike Dixon, our 
friend of the podcast, he helped me with a couple ideas for some of these crazy cult bands. So appreciate that. Why don't we move along and play some songs? Absolutely. All right, for our first song tonight, I'm going to play a song by Sun Ra and his Solar Orchestra, and it is called Abstract Eye.
That was Sun Ra and his Solar Orchestra with the song Abstract Eye from their album The Magic City, originally released in 1966. The version that I have is actually from 2017, released on Cosmic Myth Records. The original was released on Saturn Research, which I think was Sun Ra's own label. Mm-hmm. And that was just a real short song that I thought matched some of the aliens we were talking about. I don't want to go too much into Sun Ra. I don't know enough, and I really eventually want us to spend a lot of time on him. So I'm really going to leave it at that. He's amazing, and he has an incredible story. There is a really good biography on him called Space is the Place, and again, I think we're probably going to spend time, a lot of time on another episode talking about him. All right. My first song is by a band we did talk about. It is the All Save Freak Band, and this song is called All Across the Nation. <laughs>
right? That was All Across the Nation by All Say Freak Band. That was on their 1980 album, Sower, which was on the label War Again Incorporated. That's private press that Larry Hill had put out. Um, I have it on a compilation called Holy Fuzz, which is um, a bunch of Christian psych stuff that was put out by a label called Hidden Vision 1998. It's a great comp. We talked a lot about the band. Don't really need to say so, say much, but I do want to tell one story, which tells you a little bit about Larry Hill. The commune had pretty much broken up by this point. The band had definitely broken up, and he put out this album of leftover recordings called Sower, but in the liner notes, he made it sound like Glenn Schwartz was still an active member and still living at the commune, still part of the farm. And it sounds like he did that mostly to kind of keep up the image that he was tainted goods, which is just horrible. One of many horrible things he did. But the song itself is spectacular, and that is some of the best fuzz guitar. It's just a great song. My second song is called Missionary is Impossible, and it's by the band Lightstorm. Ha <laughs> 
right, that was Missionary is Impossible by a band Lightstorm, who we did mention just briefly. They were the husband and wife couple who followed Saibaba and eventually started putting out weird, weird, kind of like glam music. And they put out a strange horror movie. And so Drag City, who is responsible for putting out the Father Yod records, also put out a compilation of their two later albums. The record I have is, is called Creation, and it was put out in 2016. And it's basically half of the psychedelic concept double album called Who Am I One? And the other half is the kind of the weirder glam sexual music called uh, 33 and a Third. And that came out in 1977-1980. It is fantastic, and it is weird, and that song is a lost new wave classic. I don't know any other way to put it other than I just kind of, when I first heard it, I fell in love with that song and had to have it because I had to play it for you good people. So don't have a ton to say about it, but it is definitely worth uh, picking up that whole uh, strange Drag City compilation if you can find it. The last song we are going to play tonight is by a band called Gunman and the Holy Ghost, and it is called Oh Lord, Let Me Die in Pain.
That was Gunman and the Holy Ghost with a song called Oh Lord, Let Me Die in Pain from their 2012 album Things to Regret or Forget from the label A Records out of Germany. Gunman and the Holy Ghost is really just one guy. His name is Hakan Alstansen, and I'm sure I messed that up. <laughs> but he is the main guy behind this band. He's pretty much the only person in this band, really. He does all the music and everything. He also plays in another band that I played a song from a long time ago called The Third Sound. Gunman and the Holy Ghost is much more country-sounding, and his band The Third Sound is much more psychedelic, kind of more heavy new psych. This album he wrote very quickly, recorded it in like one session, I believe. He lives in Germany, and when he moved there, he wrote this album in his new apartment. He was the only one there. He just had an acoustic guitar and wrote all of the songs on it. He's since put out another album with the same band name, and I think he he's also working in other bands as well, but he's super talented, and if you have a chance, check out this band, Gunman and the Holy Ghost, look at the third sound. He's incredibly talented. Well, I think all we have left to do is settle up on some trivia. So we're going to go through those song clips again, and all I'm looking for is the name of the song, the artist, and the theme of the five songs. Track one. Track two. Track three. Track four. Never been to London, never been to France. Never wore a sorry, never learned to dance. Never Track five. it what do you have for these okay i think the first song i think it's zappa i don't know sounds like that i don't know i don't know the name of the song it's frank zappa okay and the song is hungry freaks daddy oh okay what record's it from freak out okay that first one yep all right the second one is a this is one that i think Ended up in a lot of, on a lot of mixtapes back in the day, but this is Queen with Seaside Rendezvous. Yes, it is. I think you're the. I only like that song because you put it on a tape. I don't think I like any other Queen songs. It is one of the best for sure. Okay, the third song really bothered me. It's definitely the Rolling Stones, and it's definitely from the Between the Buttons Aftermath Satanic Majesty's Request era. 
and I just could not remember remember the name of the song. She's a rainbow kept coming to me, but I don't. That's not it. I don't know the name of the song. It is from Between the Buttons. It's called Cool, Calm, and Collective. Yes, gosh, good song. All right, the fourth one is 100% The Velvet Underground with. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact name of that. I think it's a sheltered life is the name of the song. It's from those demos that were on the Peel Slowly and Sea Box set. Yep, that's right. Yep. yep, that's a really good song too. And the last one, I'm not 100% positive, but I think it's Ringo, She's 16. Is that the name of the song? Yeah, it's You're 16, You're Beautiful in Your Mind. Yeah, that's what I thought. And the... I can't believe you got Zappa and Ringo Starr. I never would have gotten those. Good job. Thanks. I know I know that Ringo Starr song pretty well. And Zappa kind of sounds like Zappa. His singing true. doesn't, but his, it, there's something about it. So Yeah, yeah, that's true. So the theme, and I think it's on a few of the clips. I think it's just songs that have a kazoo in them. Every song has a kazoo, and I think the kazoo should have been in every clip, at least at, least at some point in it, I thought. Could have done a few more, but figured some of those sort of maybe gave it away a little bit i hope everybody got it was it was another song with kazoo that you had uh mungo jerry oh yeah that's classic yeah i think he uses kazoo on like three or four songs on that album that has in the summertime there were a few more there's a Jimi hendrix song oh yeah there's a few yeah there are a few yeah yeah that's my most proficient uh instrument Mine is the one that makes glitter ejaculate. <laughs> All right, and that's it for trivia. Hopefully you guys, everybody did well. And I think that's it for the show. This is a, a long couple episodes here. Ooh, I'm glad to be leaving the cult, so to speak. I'm, going, I'm, I'm looking forward to listening to music that's not trying to ruin my life. Though a lot of the music I really liked a lot. It was... I don't like that I liked it a lot, but some of it are very good. Sifting through it, there is a lot of funny, bad music, and there's a lot of really talented musicians who, you know, we talked about this a little bit last time, that in different circumstances, or had they just been more focused on music, or had they not fallen in with whatever, they really could have made it. So many interesting stories, and it was a, I wouldn't say fun topic, it it was fun, but it was also harrowing uh, researching and reading about some of it but man there's a lot of weird people out there you gotta love this world you just gotta love it and i don't think it could be more obvious that our goal was not to go in depth into the cults we gave it's very brief like the lyman story there are books um i'll say free band ryan you mentioned that there was a book about them there there's a lot out there we just barely touched on anything so there are other podcasts that cover this stuff in a lot of detail. If you're interested in any of these stories or any of these cults, I'm sure you can find a lot of great podcasts. We just wanted to talk about the music because we didn't see that covered anywhere, and it's really interesting. Yeah, but those other podcasts probably won't talk about dolphins or glittery ejaculate as much as we will. No, there's a podcast for that, though, too, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, we got to give a couple shout outs. One is to Dennis. He has been a listener for a long time, and he's kind of always, you know, 
saying positive things and really seems to enjoy the show. He has fantastic taste in music as well, just from some of the things I've seen. So I just want to say thanks to Dennis and also want to say thanks to Boomer, who we've both worked with at uh, record stores and he's just a great guy and he's always been supportive of the podcast. So really appreciate him too. He also has fantastic taste in music and when when I was working with him, he showed me a lot of awesome music I wouldn't have found without him. So we love you, Boomer. All right. As always, please go out and support record stores, record labels, shows if you can get to a show, or online shows, which is probably more appropriate right now. Lots of musicians are out there hurting, so please support them. Or, you know, the other thing we don't talk about is local independent radio stations need help, too. And they're bringing great music. So find one of them uh, shows that you enjoy. And, you know, they all put out their stuff online so you can listen to music from wherever and still enjoy it and support them. So please just uh, do your part if you can. And we also want to thank our podcast network, Pantheon Podcast, where you can find dozens of great music podcasts, some that focus on history. And some focus on albums or artists, and a lot of them have interviews. It's just pretty much anything you want to hear in music, there's going to be a podcast on Pantheon that'll work. It's full of a lot of great stuff and a lot of great people. And also check us out on social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram, and our handle on both of those is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We're on Facebook. Find us there. Email us. Our email address is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com, especially if you have that hack, any hack wrench songs. That's yes. gadgetology songs, what we want. I can't. I ruined three computers looking for that. Even if you just make your own, that's fine. <laughs> reviews, like the five star reviews. If you have a minute and can review us and give us five stars or, or write if you enjoy it, if you enjoy the show. If you don't enjoy the show, don't don't do that. But if you do, that would be much appreciated. If you don't enjoy the show, you're not still listening. <laughs> I don't right? know. Some people love to watch a train wreck. Masochist. <laughs> Anyways, yeah, five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. That would help us out, and we would appreciate it. All right. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 